from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. This week, we're going to be talking, uh, we're going to title the episode Proximity Security, but we're going to be talking about how packets go across the internet. We're going to get a little nerdy, um, so stick with us, but we'll uh, work uh, through the intro to explain why this matters to to everyone out there, and then uh, for uh, the engineers or uh, other folks like us out in the audience, we're going to explain uh, some novel stuff uh, that my guest and his company are, are working on. So, Bill, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here and to talk about our new product. Yeah. So, uh, Bill, go ahead and uh, share a little bit about your background and then and kind of what led you to the, the founding of uh, Hop Zero. Well, I've done a lot of work in the military space, and I was actually talking at a military cyber symposium conference just outside of St. Louis on June 28, 2016. While I was waiting my turn to speak, I was listening to other speakers, generals, and other leaders in the military complex bemoaning how state actors and other folks are basically eating their lunch, getting into their data, exfiltrating it, and I said to myself at that moment, I can fix this. So the next day, June 29th, I began work on the patent for HopSphere Radius Security, which limits how far data packets can travel. So we're, we're going to go ahead and see if we can do a, a radio explanation of this. So, uh, and I'll, I'll do my understanding and then you can uh, reach over and knock me on the head if, if I, I get some uh, errors here. So I think everyone out there in our listening audience has used a web browser before and visited a website. So if you're going from your cell phone to that website or your computer to a website, um, you have also probably experienced at your house or your office, there's some router or cable modem or some other thing there. So if you think about going from your phone or your computer to that first router, that's a hop. And as you go across the Internet, that device in your house uh, or your office connects up to something that your Internet provider has that they call that their edge device. But that's another hop. And if you bounce across from here to, oh, let's say central China, you might go for 22 hops. But if you're going to go from, say, here in San Antonio, where we're broadcasting CyberTalk Radio, and if you're listening to us on iHeart Streaming, thank you very much uh, for listening outside the audience. If you're on 1200 WAI, uh, we appreciate our wonderful live listening audience there on a great AM radio as well. If you're going maybe to that iHeartRadio website, which is here in the U.S., you might be going for six hops or eight hops or ten hops, but you're certainly not going 22 hops. So even those nation-state actors, if if I was a, a government in across one of the oceans from the U.S., do I have control over the number of hops a packet goes across the Internet? As a, as a state nation, no. Yeah. The internet is is filled with really millions of routers. You have one in your home. We have one in our businesses, and those state actors have them there. But because there are millions of routers, there's still a path between any two locations on the internet, which is typically less than 40 hops. So anytime you have less than 40 hops, you are not communicating to the entire world. 
if you have like default settings for Microsoft is 128 hops or Oracle databases, which are at 255 hops, Linux is down at 64 hops. So any of those devices in their default configuration out of the box, they can communicate around the world. Yeah, they can 64 hops away as will will get you anywhere with quite a bit of margin of error. This hop setting in for for those listening um, we're trying to learn a little more about this. So you, you've probably heard of TCP IP before um, and the IP that slash IP the second part of that is actually the the base protocol that's the what's called the internet protocol inside of that IP packet uh, there's a header and in that header there's that field for the hop count Um, so what this prevents is if you end up with a loop on the internet to where uh, some device was uh, routing improperly and it was bouncing back and forth this keeps those uh, packets that were trying to travel to that destination that gets stuck in the loop from bouncing around forever Uh, so that the hops will eventually expire 64, 128, 255, and they would dump off. But you guys have done something novel to, uh, and even novel by the definition of the U.S. Patent Office, to protect people from being able to communicate further than they need or to maybe even shorten the amount of time if something's lost on the Internet that it bounces around out there. Exactly. And that creates safety. So instead of being exposed to an attack surface that is the entire world, the entire internet. We reduce the attack surface of these devices so that they can't be communicated to, nor can they communicate from. Yeah, so as an example with that uh, Oracle database, so say if if we uh, were only supposed to be communicating with that database via computers connected to its local segment on a VPN or uh, other hosts uh, across maybe a secured zone, but no more than one other network away, you could lower that hop count down from 255 to four or three, and it would stop those database packets from getting out onto the internet. They would just expire and the router would drop them. Precisely. That is the most powerful capability is changing that 255 hop count on an Oracle database that contains SOC data, PCI data, PII information, health information. You change that from its default setting down to, like you said, four. If there's four routers in the data center and we have a hop count of four, it decrements through each router and when it decrements to zero, when the hop reaches zero, that's why we named our company Hop Zero, is because when the hop reaches zero, the packet is destroyed by every router ever made. It is part of IP and what makes it work. So we don't have to put any software on any routers or anything. In fact, that Oracle database, we don't have to put any software on that Oracle database either. All we do is change that value in the operating system so that it will only communicate four routers deep. Yeah, and and so I've got some real security geeks and, and sysadmins out there in the audience. They go, well, why don't I just go change this on my database server by myself? Like, it sounds like I, I should just do this right now great idea, but it's not that hard, is it? 
actually, you can do it. And I encourage you to do it. And as a matter of fact, as soon as you've got about 10 or 15 set like that, and there's one little bump, because something does go awry somewhere and the hops increase for a little bit, our system will find that and adjust for those. And we will monitor for anything trying to escape beyond it. So we really want people to go set the hop count because after you do it on 10 or 15 stations, you'll be calling us up and asking us for that additional software that does all of yeah, the how do, other I, how do I automate it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so as you were or digging through working on this idea uh, and you, you realized like no one has done this before. What was that kind of epiphany moment of like, this is a real kind of clean, easy way to increase security, to make the attack surface smaller, um, to add attackers, another hurdle they have to overcome. And you're thinking, and uh, what was that, that epiphany moment when it came through uh, and what was going through your head? Well, at that time that I decided that I was going to write the uh, patent, I had already known for many years how IP hop count worked. I've trained 50,000 technologists in 27 countries on network forensics. So I had presented the what a hop count is and how those fields are and teaching people how to use Wireshark to look at that uh, metric and that sort of thing for many, many years. However, it wasn't until security became such a huge problem that you no longer wanted your hop count to be enough to go around the world. Now you were looking at saying, hey, man, we, we don't want to communicate to North Korea and to other places on the, on the globe. We want to restrict how far we communicate. And that's when it really dawned on me that the firewall with all of its capabilities, isn't able to limit the distance. Yeah. So whereas the firewalls take care of keeping things in or keeping things out, Hop Zero's solution limits how far data can travel. Yeah, and, and so speaking of firewalls, so why wouldn't I just, if I didn't want to talk to China, isn't China some set of IP addresses, and wouldn't I just go block all of those? That is correct. Uh, you can use... Uh, GOIP in the firewall and say anything that's in China by virtue of its IP ranges that IANA uh, gave to them, etc. You you can restrict where your packets go. Now the trouble is is that sometimes there are applications that need to go to China and certain um, providers. Uh, web providers and, and, and the like have things that are in China and you do need to communicate. So when you hit that bit and say absolutely nothing from China, you now may have stopped a service like GoToMeeting. Yeah. It may not work anymore or some other application. So although that does work and it is a good solution, it doesn't work in every single case. And when we set hop count, we set it on an individual device basis, not on a global basis. Yeah. And we can even set it by port. So a cool thing about setting it by port 
is that let's say you have a web server, the web server you want to reach the entire globe. However, you don't want port 22, which is the SSH port, which you can get access to the root functions of the box and control it. You don't want that port 22 going around the globe. No. So you're gonna restrict port 22 and allow port 80 and port 443 to be able to go around the globe. Yeah, and that, that is you, you get out. Um, for those that have not been in hands-on managing firewall policies, as soon as you start trying to have IP exclusion ranges by port and protocol and individual server and system, you end up with a firewall rule set that is unwieldy and unmanageable. So as, as you, you start thinking through some of these simple scenarios in your head, you're going, well, I could just do this, I could just do that. There's a reason that those things don't necessarily work. So uh, if you're... Listening to us live on the radio, you are on 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio. Um, we're talking cybersecurity. If uh, you are listening to us uh, on iHeart Streaming, thank you for joining us there. And if you happen to be uh, on your iPhone or Android device uh, streaming our podcast, uh, thank you for joining in to uh, listen and be part of our audience there. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter at Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, you can uh, find us on Facebook or on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, we've been talking about network hop count and uh, the patent and some of the work that Bill is uh, doing with his company, Hop Zero. So uh, you've uh, made the drive into San Antonio this morning uh, down I-35 uh, coming this way. So you guys are headquartered up in Austin, Texas? That's right. We are headquartered in Austin, Texas, and we actually uh, office out of the Concordia University incubator there. It's called CTX Incubator. So you've been all over the world, as you'd said earlier, training folks on these things. How did you end up in Austin, Texas? In 2005, NetQoS, a performance uh, company that was later bought by uh, Computer Associates or CA Technologies, uh, bought my company that I had run for 16 years, training tens of thousands of people and certifying uh, 3,000 certified net analysts. And when they bought the company, that kind of meant that I was going to have to move out of my home state of California, where my family has been since the mid-1800s, just south of Monterey on the Monterey coast, to Texas. And I thought, okay, I can do this for a little while. Well, it turned out to be a fabulous place. Um, and then later on, after I moved here, the company got sold to CA and that kind of freed me up to go wherever I wanted. I ended up moving back to California and just six months ago because all the development people that I know so well, the experts in uh, processing this type of data were here in Austin. And so I moved back purposefully to take advantage of the great people who were in the Austin area to help me build this company. Yeah. So uh, as, as you guys go through on the, uh, the startup path here, so... Um, many of the, the folks out there, I think, are cybersecurity practitioners listening to this. So starting your own cybersecurity product company. So you, you had this patent, this idea. You knew some people that can do development and kind of help you build a team. But how do you go from patent and idea to an actual business that's up and running? Very painfully. Even if you have an idea that sounds terrific uh, and is terrific, it still has to be brought into some reality. You start by socializing it to some degree, and of course, you don't wanna socialize things until you have your 
information uh, uh, patented. So I waited until I had it patented, and then I started talking about it, blogging about it, discussing it, and uh, socializing it with other technologists. Yeah. Uh, and... And so now you guys have uh, been up and running for a, a couple of years now. Actually, I have been up and running okay. for a couple of years as the founder. However, I worked on the patents and started socializing it, working with investors and people that could help me do it. And actually, in February of 2018, February 1st, our team started. There's four of us, and that's actually our true start date per se of when we started really writing serious code other than prototypes yeah so as as you get out uh in front of uh early adopter customers and you start talking to folks about this what what are the reactions you're getting from some of the networking or security teams it's it's pretty eye-opening when i explain what we're trying to accomplish whether it's uh, the Cisco development team, security team, or Juniper's team, or Semantics team, they come around and they start looking at it and they say, so what is this? And I explain how we're limiting how far data can travel by starving time to live. And they look at themselves, one another, they look at me kind of with some curiosity and say, why didn't someone else already do this? Yeah. To wit, I say, I don't know, but we're doing it now, and it's very powerful, and it's going to make a dent. It's not going to change every everything, but it's going to make a very serious dent. Our, our objective is to stop the wholesale rating of America's data and the world's data so that everyone can keep their sovereign data theirs. Yeah, and and uh, it's interesting. So I used the uh, we talked a little bit about the um, how the hop stuff works. And if you think uh, um, analogy, if you're out there listening still and, and not quite uh, all the way up to speed, so uh, from air travel, like you you think about I've got to go to one airport and then I've got to go to another airport. I've got to go to another airport. If you, so, if you wanted to um, stop people from flying from San Antonio, Texas to the mid Middle East, if they were only allowed to take direct flights, you're not going to be able to get there. You can't fly on an airplane directly from San Antonio to Dubai. You've got to hop and stop somewhere in between. Exactly. And just another uh, internet application that was one of the very first was BGP routers. BGP routers have a hop of one when they broadcast their routes. And that's purposeful yeah. so that they cannot peer with other than a direct adjacency. They don't want to uh, peer with some router that's across the world or across multiple um, uh, other routers. So they limit the hop count to one. And that's one of the major applications of hop starvation is the BGP router. Uh, router only allowing one hop so they won't peer with other than adjacent peers yeah and and uh for for those that bgp is the way that all the different people out there on the internet talk to each other so if um, i was at&t as an internet service provider and maybe i was um uh, Verizon, they will peer with each other over BGP. So it's it's kind of a low trust way to connect with each other. You only have to advertise all the IP addresses that folks can reach 
um, through your network. You don't have to share any topology or other details with somebody who might be a competitor. Um, it's interesting, though, BGP, even with that hop count limiting, uh, is a, a frequent target of attacks. There was one recently here the, up in the Chicago area at a data center peering uh, where uh, Amazon's Route 53 DNS service got hijacked for a couple of hours over a, a BGP uh, attack. So uh, it, it's one, of, if you are curious to learn a little bit more about BGP, there's a recent article, there was a plenty written up about that attack uh, on Amazon's Route 53 DNS service. Um, that's a good one to get started. Um, and then you could go down a rabbit hole of BGP attacks for the rest of your life. Just like every other kind of protocol out there. It's very interesting. I did a study on my own internet uh, connection. And what I found was over the period of about eight hours, I had 2,126 different organizations or IP addresses trying to attack my system. Now, the firewall did block those attempts, but how often are we tempted to just shut off the firewall for a couple of minutes to see if this other application will work? Well, I'm here to tell you that if you do that, there are thousands of devices around the world who are constantly, even on a home connection to an ISP, they are constantly looking for any little hole that might develop. It's amazing that they have that much traffic that it just is a huge amount of traffic that of little attempts on every protocol to break into your home overnight. Yeah. And and as as folks uh, go, well, why don't why doesn't your internet provider just block all this stuff? They they can't because they don't know uh, whether Bill went to that website or didn't go to that website. They're delivering uh, an IP packet that says, "I'm coming from this address. I'm going to this address." And there's a little bit more metadata and things on there, but the internet service provider doesn't know if Bill asked for that packet to be delivered or not. Exactly. So they have to allow pretty much everything to see what develops of it and then if there is a legitimate connection or even an illegitimate connection the internet does not check the security of any of the communicators on the internet no and the the those internet connections are um, it's just a, a highway system connecting different things if you think about that airport analogy again there's security checkpoints at the airport. All of at every airport you fly in, if you land in another country, you go through another security checkpoint. The internet, um, the airport analogy is useful for explaining the hop count piece, but it's much more like a highway system. Like I can get in my car and I can drive from Texas all the way uh, to New York, and I don't want to have to stop at a single security checkpoint anywhere along the way. And the state of Texas is responsible for the roads here, and as soon as I cross into Oklahoma, they're responsible for the roads there. So. Um, the internet is, is set up very much that way as you, you go across um, on your computer uh, built into any operating system. There's a command called trace route um, and you can open up a, a command prompt uh, and you can use trace router. There's even some websites that will do trace route stuff for you um, and you can see the different hops there. And if you have the DNS resolution turned on. It'll also show you the names of all those routers along the hop path, and you'll be able to see pretty quickly that you go from your ISP to some other ISP to somebody else to somebody else before you finally maybe get to the website. If you're going to go shopping at Amazon, you might cross three or four different providers to go from your internet uh, provider at your house uh, to a backbone provider or two before you, you reach a website. 
Exactly. I always talk about limiting how far your kids can drive in your car by reducing the amount of fuel or the toll value that you give them to go across bridges or roads. And when they, when the hop equals zero or the toll equals zero, you can't go anymore. Yeah. So you're listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break here at the bottom of the hour for a news, traffic, and weather update. And we will be back with the CTO of Hop Zero to keep talking about uh, how to keep data safe and uh, protected from exfiltration on the Internet. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by the founder of Hop Zero, Bill Alderson, and we were talking about uh, the novel approach to uh, limiting how far your information can go across the internet uh, that Bill has uh, uncovered and uh, is using to help uh, businesses out there now protect uh, their data from making it uh, further than it needs to uh, on the highway that is the internet. Thank you for uh, coming down the highway uh, today to join us from uh, Austinville. Awesome to be here with you, Brett. Uh, it's it's really nice here in in San Antonio. Although I hope it's going to break through and we might see the sun today. Uh, if you're just joining us after the bottom of the hour break, uh, we're uh, talking about. Uh, how to keep things uh, safe um, and the kind of default operating system settings uh, are one to uh, over communicate and overshare maybe further than you need to. Uh, you can listen to the first half of our program uh, on Tuesday, uh, May 15th. It'll go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. You can also uh, find it on iTunes podcasts or uh, on any podcasting service uh, on your Android device. In this uh, segment of the program, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of uh, Bill's other experiences recently here is uh, in the cyber world. Uh, we, we have a giant uh, annual conference. It's now giant because the cybersecurity thing is starting to matter to more and more people. Uh, it's called uh, RSA. Um, it used to originally be about a company. If you've been in the cyber industry for quite a while, they made the two-factor authentication tokens. You might have one from your bank these days. You might have one from the VPN service for uh, your company. Um, but it, it's now that conference has massively outgrown just uh, multi-factor authentication. So uh, can you share a little bit for our listeners that uh, have never uh, experienced RSA or, or learned much about it uh, uh what went on out there this year and kind of well, what's your reasoning um, as an industry professional for visiting something like that? RSA is in San Francisco at Moscone Center once a year. They also have it in other locations around the world, but that's by far the largest uh, gathering of security professionals from around the world. I went this year to showcase and we were selected from a large number of companies to be in the early stage expo where new technology was shown to the market. And that's why our, our predominantly why we went out there this year. Last year I went as well as just wanting to be more informed to see what the market was doing, 
to understand new products and services surrounding security. Uh, thousands, I think there was 41,000 or more people, end users, uh, technology people who attend the show each year. Yeah. Uh, and for, for folks in, in San Antonio to give uh, some size scale scope, um, our convention center here holds uh, about twenty or 25,000. So the Moscone's broken up into multiple convention centers. And then that RSA conference floods the convention center and a bunch of hotel exhibition space uh, there. Uh, it, it's a, one of the uh, probably five biggest conferences each year in, in San Francisco. Uh, but it's a, a huge event, um, all now tied to cybersecurity uh, from authentication through to network through to application security to to everything you can think about so uh, as you were out there and you're in this uh, new technology expo was there anyone working on something where in in another area that you thought was uh, interesting to you as a practitioner that um, folks should be checking out I can talk about it generally I don't know all the buzzwords and terms associated with this but this is about taking software that has been written for various operating systems and putting it into a non-operating system environment. What they do is they, they take your software and they put it into something that, let's say it's supposed to run on Linux or Windows, and it doesn't run on Linux and Windows. They take the components needed to only run that application so that the operating system that usually runs your application cannot be hacked by other means and I found that really exciting because that's going to lead to our ability to have software that's not on an operating system that has these uh, proclivities to have problems. Yeah, well, yeah, minimizing that attack surface again, just uh, back to the same kind of fundamentals with Hop Zero. It, all the different places you can go through to minimize attack surface, you make the uh, job of the hacker much more difficult, the job of the bad guy. Um, and it is jobs these days for for those that think hackers are something like out of a, a movie you see on TV or just a war games. These are um, sadly now professional criminal organizations. Um, and in many cases, those professional criminal organizations run as an employer inside the country that they're operating in um, with uh, kind of a, the country turning and looking the other direction. Um, those countries have. Uh, employment issues, they have salary and wage issues, they have uh, economic issues that make them turn and look the other way. And these criminal organizations agree to not hack businesses inside the country they're operating from, but they're kind of free to go hack uh, all across the globe. And because um, the internet is this big connected highway system that doesn't necessarily have security checkpoints, uh, there's nothing to stop the folks in these different places uh, from going in, hacking, stealing information, or uh, locking systems up for ransom or doing these other things. And if you, you think about a, a police investigation, so from a, a physical, if you're a business in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, somebody came in and uh, kidnapped your, your staff, well, they're going to have to physically be at your office location. They're going to have to physically hold it for ransom. Um, they are there, the police in San Antonio, the FBI in San Antonio, whoever could come respond to that. Um, if your business gets attacked across the Internet, um, those criminals didn't have to physically be here. They got to virtually be here. They got to go 22 hops across the Internet to get here. And uh, those uh, criminals, if you call the police here in San Antonio, they're going to forward to the FBI. 
that's going to get forwarded through to Interpol. Interpol is going to go, we don't have an agreement to operate inside of that country, and we can't really do anything to help you. So the you have to do things proactively yourself to minimize uh, your risk from some of these places. And um, I would love to solve the geopolitical problems of the world so that um, countries didn't have the incentive uh, to uh, allow these type of organizations to operate from within their borders to help their economies. But um, that's a, a topic for another program and a thing for another time. Um, and while the world is growing up um, in the way it is today, uh, we're the onus is on us to do things to to protect ourselves. And uh, another application that uh, had a lot of uh, uh, talk was, of course, blockchain. And blockchain is the technology, the ledger technology behind Bitcoin. And, and, and of course, that works perfectly for that. I ran into an old friend of mine, Radia Perlman. Now, Radia was the one, if you've ever heard of a switch or a layer two switch, she wrote the protocol that keeps loops from occurring. And that's called the spanning tree algorithm. And Radia is a brilliant woman who has, uh, when you think of brilliant women in the industry, you think of Grace Hopper, the admiral, uh, who brought a lot of technology in. Well, Radia is kind of another person, another woman who has seriously brought technology in. She has just written a white paper claiming that probably blockchain isn't a perfect application for every kind of use. It works good with um, Bitcoin, but not with the uh, with the other applications that people are trying to apply it to, although it's very interesting. So if somebody wants to look up and find out a little bit more about blockchain, she has a white paper that she's written out there uh, that basically is the other side of the coin, so to speak. Yeah, and if you uh, follow us on uh, Twitter at CyberTalk Radio, we'll get a, a link to that up probably with the blog post and episode recap uh, that we will will do for the program here. So um, definitely interesting reading. Uh, that's uh, Blockchain is going to be an area with lots of innovation. There's um, counties out there going to using blockchain-based things for title searches and for deed history and records on property. Um, there's some interesting places that it's going to get used, and I, I think that we're going to see over the next 10 years or 20 years some places where people use it, and you're going to look back and go, oh, they really shouldn't have done that. So uh, hopefully reading uh, her white paper will help some folks uh, avoid those decisions uh, that put them down a path of, of regret later on because um, after you make a technology choice, it's, it's often uh, pretty hard to go back and make a wholesale change uh, of something like that. Um, this is, is why you, you end up, uh, making add-ons uh, and um, security measures and controls around the system rather than just replacing the whole system itself. So it was really exciting to uh, bring out Hop Zero and Hop Sphere Radius Security to the RSA event. We received a lot of interest from Cisco and Juniper and Symantec and just a lot of vendors who are amazed that, gee, this sounds like an incredibly good idea. And they always ask, why didn't someone think of this before? And then they kind of look at me curiously to wonder, you know, why you? Yeah. And they're going to go back to their R&D teams and go, how did we not patent this? Yeah, because now they can't go do it. Well, they can. 
they just need to call you and get a license. There you go. Yes. So uh, Bill's phone is is waiting for your phone call uh, at Cisco. So as you were out there working on this, and we're going to air here uh, in the the middle of May on Saturday night, and uh, there's going to be some cyber folks that are probably up right now uh, working while listening to this because they're trying to figure out how to deal with GDPR. Um, They're going to try to figure out how to deal with the requirements around data exfiltration and data notice and the rest of these. Um, as, as I'm thinking through this just in my own head, um, sure seems like Hop Zero and this type of technology is a great way to be able to go back to a regulator and say, my hop count on my database server that contains the sensitive information is set to one. And that means only these direct computers can talk to it. It can't go any further than this. Um, I have evidence that these systems are all um, secured, controlled, and they have not been compromised. And that means the data could not have leaked any further than this. So like there's from a, a hack or a data exfiltration perspective, the information couldn't get off of the network and you could go definitively prove that pretty easily. Exactly. And in our effort to determine what the appropriate hop count is, we look at every packet that goes in and out of your organization or in and out of a data center, and we tell you exactly where your data is going. After we have mapped out where your data is going around the globe, we sit down with the data owner of that application who is aghast to see their information exfiltrating to Kazakhstan and other parts of the globe unbeknownst to anyone. And you know, the security people are doing a really good job trying to watch where your data is going, and but it's really illustrative to have a map of where your HR database is going, where your particular owned application, SAP application is going across the internet. And it's, it's amazing to see the, where your data is going and people are aghast to see that it's traveling to faraway locations unbeknownst to them. Yeah. So if if I wanted to do discovery with Hobzero, so say I just want to understand where my information is traveling, what does that look like? If I, I call you on the phone and say, hey, Bill, can you come out next week and send your team and let's go ahead and, and do discovery for my, my tier one applications? Actually, it's easier than that, Brett. What we do is we instruct your security people to give us just the network headers, just the information that routes packets. They give us that information, a small snapshot. We take it, put it into our mapping system, analyze it, and then show you on a map where your data is traveling. And when you click on one of those points, it tells you, is this a a Tor exit node? Is this an anonymous VPN? All of this type of information about that particular point that you're communicating with. We also tell you how much information is exfiltrating out to that point and how much information is coming in from that point. And because we have such a performance analysis background, we just went ahead and said, okay, well, what's the throughput that this device is um, sending your data to determine the sophistication level of who's hacking you or who's getting into your information. And we do latency analysis on all of those. So when you click on one of those points, you're presented with a whole bunch of very valuable information about who you are talking to. And we have found, for instance, 
on uh, some applications just looking at all the data and we found HVAC systems communicating around the world. Yeah, and Target creating would, Target would have liked to know about that uh, a little bit sooner. Yeah, for those not hearing my joke, and that's not really much of a joke. For those not hearing or understanding my comment, uh, Target, uh, the data breach there was through their HVAC vendor um, air, and their air conditioning and con control system. And it's amazing, you know, once the application owner sits down and looks at this, at where your data is going, the then what that does is it allows the application owner of that information to sit down with the security people and to begin to mitigate where that data is going. Because if you think about it, the security people are in darkened rooms, looking through logs, looking at Splunk data, looking at log data, trying to determine where your data is going. But they don't always know where it is supposed to go and not supposed to go. Who knows that? the application data owner knows that. So we present our maps to those owners of information, the business people, and say, this is where your data is going. And what that does is magically begin to get the people with the money and the influence in the business units into the security space, helping the security people, and funding those initiatives to go about mitigating this data traveling to places beyond where they care for it to be traveling. Yeah, now it'll be interesting to see with the uh, the size of the fines on GDPR um, how this changes some of the business risk decisions. Because I think if you go um, look, I mean, what I've heard on the the Equifax breach has cost two hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, they've gone, they've blown their insurance policy out of the water. Um, they've been on the hook for a big chunk of that themselves. Uh, but um, many of these data breaches end up being 20, 30, 50 million dollars. And if you're a multinational, many billion dollar revenue company, um, you, sadly enough, we end up with 10 million dollar mistakes on a fairly regular basis. And you have to just kind of take that as part of doing business. But now with the GDPR, I mean, we're looking at potentially billion dollar fines for this and I think every company in the world um, looks at a billion dollars and that's still a, a real number uh, even Apple and and to to build on that GDPR they will they have the ability to assess up to four percent of your global revenue gross revenue not net revenue which is an amazing amount so in our product when you get one of the maps that your data is, is, is represented as to going or to coming from, we have a button, you click GDPR. And guess what? It shows you all the places on the map that you need to apply and make certain any data that you are getting from that nation, you are treating appropriately for the GDPR rules. So you can provide visibility to that as well. Exactly, any port or protocol, a lot of people look at it and say, we've been trying to get uh, SSL on all of our web servers in throughout our entire company. And then they'll find that port 80, which is the HTTP protocol is open. Well, you click a button and it'll show you where all your port 80 is going around the world and also how much information is going out and how much is getting in by each peer going in and out of your organization. 
they say, and you can probably speak uh, more highly on this than I, that it takes about 250 days to find that you've been infiltrated. And so the hacker is sitting there having a field day for 250 days. I mean, that's just under a year that they are having free reign. And by looking at where your data is going and getting the end user involved, it very rapidly starts to mitigate. And it's not only on the shoulder of all the security people. Thousands of security people are trying to figure out what to do, but they need some input. They need some help from the data owners by looking at where their data is going and giving them information and saying, no, it shouldn't go here, and yes, it should go there. Yeah, that the uh, interestingly enough, you would think it's good news that the average on the amount of time it's taking a business to detect it's been hacked is going down. Um, and you're like, well, this is great. We're doing good work. Well, what it turns out is that that number is going down because of ransomware, because you find out immediately that you've been hacked when the pop-up shows up on your computer screen. So there's all these data points now that are it, one day immediately. You've been discovered in one day that you've been hacked. Um, so that number's down to about six months on average still. Even with all of those ransomware pop-ups out there, it's still taking an average of, of six months. And we've had on um, Chris Garretts, who used to be in the, the U.S. Air Force, uh, doing uh, malware hunting and, and um, network reconnaissance. And uh, so he talked about hunt and trying to go find attackers that are already in your network. Um, and I, I mean, I think something uh, like what y'all are doing with Hob Zero is to, to they're going to get in, um, sadly enough. And anything you can do to slow them down, to make their life more difficult, to make their life more complicated, um, it will increase uh, your odds uh, to that you are able to successfully mitigate uh, any damage. Because if you, if you go on like the physical person analogy of if I go uh, next door into a high rise office building and I start walking around floor to floor, I probably can get over there. I can tailgate somebody through a door. I can get in and I can wander around the building, but am I really going to be able to grab somebody's laptop or um, some other sensitive records and get out of the building before anybody notices? Hopefully not, uh, but the, the longer I'm allowed to wander around and the, the fewer locked doors you have, if you don't have laptop chains locking the laptops down to desks and those sorts of things, the easier it's going to be for me to steal a laptop. If I it had a chain locked down to the desk, I've got to have bolt cutters with me. If I don't have bolt cutters, well, I just failed on that attempt. I've got to come back with them again tomorrow. So all the things you can do digitally to make it more difficult for the attackers uh, is important. Each one of these adds up to increasing the likelihood that they get caught or they give up and they move on to an easier target. And one of the troubles is the social engineering aspect, like you talked about, of uh, sending in phishing and spear phishing, uh, where they send you an email and it looks like your bank, it looks like your boss, it looks like your friend, and you click on that and boom, you're going to North Korea and you're going to get compromised. Well, part of what Hop Zero, Hop Sphere Radius Security does is lower those number of hops that devices are able to go. And for instance, a lot of people use uh, proxy servers in order to protect information that users are, you know, clicking on things. But what happens is it goes out and it can go out around the world. Well, where do hackers hide? They're, yes, they are in the United States, they are in other locations, but they work with impunity when they are beyond the border, when they are beyond the rule of law. And so what we try to do is lower your risk to those uh, 
deep web people beyond the rule of law from simply just donning uh, a little tool that they downloaded that has the NSA toolkit or the CIA toolkit on it, and they just start pummeling away at your devices. When you've lowered your hop count, they can't connect to you and you can't even get a login prompt in order to use um, trying to crack a password. So yeah. it's really very powerful. Yeah. So we were talking uh, during that bottom of the hour break um, about an animation on your website. I know I've used a couple of analogies here during the program, but uh, there's a, an animated uh, video on the, the Hop Zero website that goes through some of this in some more detail. If folks wanted to go visit your website and check that video out, where would they go? Hopzero.com. So, uh, Bill, for uh, the kids that are in our audience, uh, Cyber Patriot, we have a lot of folks uh, doing that that listen out here. Um, but should they worry that we're going to solve all of the cybersecurity problems before they graduate from high school? I think their future is secure. Yeah. However, in the future, right now, Hopzero is working on securing the enterprise. But our technology works in the home as well. So if you have IoT gear, uh, for instance, your refrigerator, your thermostat, your Barbie doll, your Dino toy, they're all in your house. They can connect into the middle of the internet, and once they do that, they can have a back door back into your network. By limiting the hop count of IoT gear uh, that's commercial or whether it's uh, home, you can keep those devices inside your home and limit how far data travels and keep that data in your home. Thank you very much for joining us and thank you for uh, doing your part to make the internet a safer place.